1: Welcome to 3, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. I'm Gil Gross, host of Monday Match Analysis with outstanding tennis journalist Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. Rafael Nadal, for a ludicrous 13th time, is your Roland Garros champion in 2020. And he has equaled one of our three, Roger Federer, with 20 total major titles. Wow. This was a masterclass, Amy.
2: Well... I thought Rafa really stood up to the challenge and the pressure that he had put on himself by not playing the US Open to prepare for this his beloved French Open. On his favorite court ever and he had put a lot of pressure on himself by skipping a slam to do this and he lived up to the challenge and it's kind of like like this, because um, he really is something else. He's a cut above and um, played just brilliantly.
1: You were bowing for those who were listening. You're bowing down to <laughs> Rafa, the king yeah. of clay. <laughs> Joel, what, what do you think? Big well,
0: I just think this was this final of all the 13 he's won. This was his greatest effort. We talked about that the other day. And I think what Nadal had to do, he had to be the one innovating more based on the history with Novak, based on the patterns. <clears throat> and he did, right from the start. The court positioning, the aggression, the jolting Novak, the, um, even the, the tracking down the drop shots, the a few lobs early. Ways of saying to Novak, no, not that lane, not that lane. He began to kind of clog all of Novak's preferred routes, many of them. And so then he kind of starts to strangle Novak, and then he's using his own offense. I mean, the game so much about real estate conservation and and the zero-sum battle inside the lines. And Rafa, just unbelievable, particularly those first two sets. I mean, that is just as good as it gets thus far.
2: And to give us a little bit of credit, Gil, our preview podcast leading up into this, um, we said that it would be a battle of real estate and not topspin. And as soon as the NBC American Telecasters get on the air, the first thing they talk about is the fact that Djokovic would be advantaged by the conditions and the lack of topspin, the ball bounce that was three inches lower, blah, 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 blah. Boy, I think we kind of nailed that one. And we also nailed some other points like the drop shot and the lob retrieval, which I have to give Joel a ton of credit for. He said, you got to, when you're on the lob retrieval, you got to lob that thing up. Don't try a tweener. Not once did Nadal try a tweener. And he acquitted himself pretty well.
0: Well, I think Rafa, I think the way Rafa sees the game, I think Rafa would feel he was disrespecting the entire sport, his opponent, the planet to try one of those showboat shots. I mean, his uncle Tony would just wince if you ever saw him try one of those things <laughs> and Rafa, but also I thought with the lob, it was early on using it, not as retrieval, but off the Novak approach shot and throwing them up. And, and this this Novak overhead, I mean, not that he's going to be lobbed constantly, but it is a little interesting how, you know, Rafa knew where he was going to hit it. And then he ran there and he ran them down. I mean, and that kind of threw a scare into Novak too, because Novak had to start doing more with his ground strokes from the baseline and hit harder than approach. He kind of got scared right. of coming to the net and justifiably against Nadal on clay, but he coming again, more, more, part, more parts of the court kept getting closed to Novak. So his, his portals were just locked again and again and Rafa was just shoving him back. Amazing.
1: Joel, when you wrote about the, the nadal Schwartzman match, you talked about the beginning setting the tone. And that happened again in this match with, uh, and partially that was, could be attributed to the Nadal defense and the Djokovic overhead because Novak was broken in the first game of the match. He had an overhead, albeit from a deep court position at deuce. He had another overhead to save break point at out and ended up losing both of those points. Didn't miss the overheads, but as you, as you alluded to, Nadal was able to neutralize them a pretty demoralizing way to start the match
0: the overhead is intended to be terminal. In other words, when you're taught an overhead, you're taught that you should end the point with it mm. and that it didn't. And again, though, it's interesting. I'm, I want to keep evolving and both these guys are great examples of it. New ways of how we see what offense and defense really means and maybe the, the transcendent way of looking at it is the application of pressure. of The way I squeeze you to do things that are uncomfortable, Whether whether it's make you hit a passing shot or make you hit an overhead, whatever that deal is. And there's a way, I think one of the themes of this entire three analysis can be to see how, what these guys have done to take the game stylistically. I mean, even in the prior generation, it was a little more obvious Pete Sampras offense, Michael Chang defense. And we were a little, that was a little more visible in certain kind of ways, but these guys are, are turning these language into a different way. I mean, when we really start to assess what they're, Legacy's the game is this way of what, like Novak, forceful defense. You know, he's not defense. He's not steady. It's something else. And so it's really interesting. And early on, Nadal did that masterfully, some lobs, tracking down the drop shot, hitting some cross-court backhands of his own, just all over, just a swarm.
2: What about the leaping, spinning, mid-court backhand tap that Nadal pulls off somehow. Um, I've seen him hit that shot for a winner, Um, but you're right, Joel, just the tracking down of shots in the, in the first set from all parts of the court had to have been demoralizing.
1: He was almost flawless in the first two sets. Djokovic even said that Nadal surprised him, which is incredible that a 12 time champion can surprise Novak Djokovic on the other side of the net. But Truly Nadal was, was near flawless. I mean, if you try to nitpick his performance, which like, of course I try to do for fun, he missed a couple (laughs) volleys, right. That, that he could have made in the third set, his serving dipped a tad. Other than that, you can look at court positioning. You can look at the sustained aggression off of his forehand and his backhand, his touch on both executing the drop shot and retrieving the drop shot his court position, which was so clever uh, to cover Novak's drop shot. It was such a complete performance.
0: Well, it really was about court positioning and movement. And then it's fueled the underpinning for it is Nadal's competitive ferocity. And of our three, the one I want playing for my life. I mean, I'm not a goat guy, but I'm a kind of one for your life guy. And when I think of Nadal or I, I wrote this, somebody retweeted something I put up last year. I said, when the, When the invaders from the other planet come, and they will come here, and they want to take us away, their tennis person is going to have to first beat Nadal at Roland Garros. And if that guy does, then I'll get on board the ship. I (laughs) I love
2: that. This guy
0: with his will, the way, and you could just imagine the way he knew what he had to do and the practice. And I think that's kind of the, the developmental back lesson about how you prepare to compete. I mean, how he knew what his real chance was was to do these things that were a little beyond his normal comfort zone. I mean, his court positioning, his his moving forward, his his not just thinking, oh, I'm gonna kind of get Novak to miss and eventually he'll flag a forehand because Novak Novak's a lot better. This is a lot better than the than the Novak Rafa beaten prior Roland Garros finals.
2: Yeah, which goes to you guys' discussion about are they better now or better then. I mean it's hard to argue that Nadal was better then with the performance that he gave today.
0: That's right because it's competition and competition increases the quality. So yeah, the 2020 Nadal is a good is in a certain ways better than the 2014 Rafa. It's just amazing and they, and the same and the same credit for Novak for Novak playing well enough to get here and yet being completely just manhandled. I mean, no, I don't think anyone was going to see Rafa winning the first two sets. Oh, and two like that. And then, and then having to, as happens, it's, it's amazing. Even for them, two sets to love up a break in the third. up, oh, and here comes Novak. And then we get a little bit of, uh, of tightness towards the end of the third and Novak though. I don't know. What do you think, Amy happened to Novak then? Let's say we'll go late in the third and then you can spool back the others.
2: Well, I I think for me, there was a turning point of the match and Gil, I want to hear your turning point too, because what you were saying before we went on the air was turned something in my head. Um, There was a game, it was in the second set. And I don't remember which game, but there was a, a probably a medium rally, medium length rally, and Novak hit lines on opposite sides of the court to win the point. Okay, so if you're Novak, good job, you won the point. It, it may have saved break point or something like that, but he had to hit two lines on opposite sides of the court to win the point. And my husband was watching the match at that point, and he said to me, um, well, that was good from Novak, and I said, right now, what Novak is thinking is the only way I can get a decent point off of this guy is to hit two lines on opposite sides of the court. It is extremely demoralizing, and it, it should be all downhill from here. And wow. you know, pretty much that was what happened. This
0: awesome. is like the other day with Schwartzman, where Schwartzman uh, played twenty three games in twenty-five minutes to get back on serve at one-two in the first. Well done. Give the guy a chip.
1: Here's what I, here's what I think happened. And it, it really plays off what you just said, Amy. Novak did not have an easy way to win any point uh, because the drop shot wasn't there. And it's no uh, Rafa was moving so well and defending so well. And we talk about these conditions. It was a misread. It was a misread by people because everyone just focused on the height of bounce. What about the speed of the court? Novak, much prefers a court that allows him to to penetrate uh, his ground strokes through it a little bit easier. To me, Novak was reaching for more power than he ordinarily has. He was hitting it as hard as he can and as flat as he can. And there were points in the third set where it worked. And it was like, wow, Djokovic is hitting massive off the ground. His forehand looks like Del Potro, and he's actually having some success. But that's low margin. That's high risk. And all Nadal did was he was very comfortable and he knew that he was going to get a flood of errors at some point from Novak if, if Djokovic continued to play that well. And at five all, Djokovic is up 30-15. He hits a backhand error, a forehand error, a double fault. There's the break. A couple more errors when Nadal uh, serves it out at 6-5, a service winner, an
0: ace, and that was it. But Djokovic had to do that because that had been the way Nadal had smothered him so much earlier. In the match. So it's not like Nadal just kind of like hunkered and, and hung in and as much as and, and knew that. It's like he he compelled Novak early in the match to have to do other things. Like he had taken so many of Novak's pets off the table. And you're right about the um, about the uh, the surface proving more significant than the height of the bounce. But the misread, again, I don't really care what other media say. Do you know what I mean? I don't I don't rate it on what others We're saying, I mean, I think Amy brought some great data out about the, um, about that. So it's like, you know, it's, it's fine. It's, it's all right.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. I just like my whole shtick is kind of to bust myths. And um, that was one where after looking at the data, when my partner sent me the graphics and we were going through it my this was before the tournament started my mouth just dropped open because i'm like wow none of this stuff matters to rafa all the stuff that the media has been saying the conditions you know the conventional they're not, they're not
0: they don't know they're just other people they're just other myth makers not true knowers i mean you went right to some data and <laughs> found some really interesting things that we could see gil i'm sorry
1: what about what about nadal because, because Nadal went out and said, I don't like these conditions. They don't suit me, but I'm just going to stay positive. Put my head down and try my best.
2: Was he feeding right? the? the, well, Rafa, is the
0: look, Rafa is the, uh, Rafa is the consummate undersell guy, right? Rafa is the guy, R- Rafa is, I don't know how I'm going to do on the midterm. I don't understand any of this stuff. Oh my God, this final is really God. Oh, you know, Rafa is that that's his whole career is that. And he was honest about that. He was honest about that, but okay. The neat thing about. The great thing about sports, and this is why I so like writing about sports compared to other topics. It's like, it's, it's commentary. That's the word Pete Sanford used once I was interviewing him about it. He said, it's all commentary and it's performance. And of course, then these athletes do other things. I'm not saying they're they're, whether they're extraordinary or what they are in some ways, but they, they then adjust. It's like the ball thing. The ball thing is always, that's a 72-hour story. That by- but
2: you're right, Gil. You're right. And even... Rafa was talking about the ball. He complained about the ball in one of his press conferences. So What I can't figure out, and from our research, by the way, the ball does not matter. (laughs) So What I can't figure out is, is that a red herring? Did he put out that out there knowing that, look, it really doesn't matter? Or does he not really know? Was he genuinely worried about these things, the cold and the ball and all that?
0: Always genuinely worried. That's his deal. That's his deal. That That's true. So
2: he was genuinely worried. He, no. does, he does not know that statistically he actually plays better in cooler, wetter conditions yeah, he and he's, he's, fine not, he's fine with all balls. But
0: he's all, you know, and this also gets a thing about these rivalries. It's like, you know, we saw, we saw a pile of data before about the rivalry and the clay and we, we each churn through this stuff ourselves. And I look at, and at a certain point and let's talk even ourselves as players, it's here we are today's match now. -hmm. Today's match now, Mm -hmm. and I'm not playing for the narrative of the 56th time or the the Exxon Clay or the pursuit of another Slam. I just got to play this match now. And Rafa, though, I think he he enjoys he actually likes kind of worrying because that helps put him Mm -hmm. that makes him work harder. It's if worrying is the opposite of what taking it for granted. Yes, yeah. And and
1: he talks about about it in his autobiography.
0: Yeah, Rafa writes himself.
1: Rafa writes himself that he, his hard work comes from a place of insecurity that he needs to put in the work and train harder than everyone else, because he honestly does not believe in his own talent.
2: Well, no,
0: we've never going to, that's why this is such a perfect tournament for him because this is what I call the homework slam. This is the least, this is the slam you can least cut corners and show for. You can opportunistically win Wimbledon even now with the grass you can opportunistically get hot and, and strike it big. And that's why Nadal winning this in an era where the game has been built to play well on this surface. You know, there are more potential great play court players now than at any time. And so he's mowing through all these people.
1: Can I make an analogy? Which test do you study harder for? The test you, you think you're about to get a C on or the test you feel you're gonna get an A on? Both. No, that's a great question. No, the C. Yeah, you, you, you blow off Definitely. the studying. If if you think you're gonna get an A, you blow off the studying for that one and you would study on the C one. And Nadal comes into every tournament thinking or afraid that he's gonna get a C. So he studies his his butt off.
0: I was always afraid no matter what. So that was, you know, I had maybe that's why maybe that's why as we track our way through <laughs> who we like among these three, who we each are. I I you know it's like I felt I felt kind of Nadal like when I was in school. Like I had to like either any result, any midterm results always put me on edge. It's like, oh my God, got to defend that or got to do better. So I don't gotta know. What about the you?
2: A, you? Yeah. Uh, I, I definitely study for the Seymour. <laughs> it, it, it's a complete, but, but the confidence aspect of this uh, definitely dovetails with something that Roger Federer says, which is confidence I the exact quote is something like confidence is the staff that you bring in or the the stick that you lean on that you bring into the match you know so that would make sense and if Nadal feels that he's almost over prepared for the thing that then feeds the confidence
0: well that's a really interesting theme about these guys that we can explore and maybe we can even each in our own research look at how what it is to them that builds confidence and good feeling and good energy. It's like you watch the way uh, Rafa practices compared to the way Roger practices, at least at the slams. I mean, at tournaments, when you see them at tournaments and you see how Roger is, it's relaxed, it's kind of playful. It's, and that's works for him and Rafa. It's kind of like this full metal jacket. I got to throw myself at the ball and, and I'm not quite, I need to study a little more about what it is for Novak and, it, and whether his whole approach to it so it's interesting how how we get ourselves in the place for performance whether it's taking an exam or or playing a tennis match and I think that's really interesting how these guys go about it yeah it's fascinating and Nadal yeah like, Rafa you've won it you won it 12 times oh my god I can't take anything for granted everyone's going to, I mean he just he, and, and then maybe that's also part of the language he was raised like you know the famous uh, Uncle Tony story where he looks at where Rafa wins some 12s tournaments. You guys know that story, and and Tony go and Rafa goes, yeah. Look at all these guys who won, and Tony goes, yeah. Look at all these guys. You hear of any of them? You know that mm-hmm. none yes. of them did anything of consequence. So it's like, so what? So right. what? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I have a question. Yeah. That I want to pose to, to both of you. None of us expected this match to be as one-sided as it was. So, what specifically in the match caught you by surprise, Joel?
0: The court position. I think Roth is ferocious movement and really grabbing hold of looking to take balls early and really to kind of throw it down at Novak. That was the thing, the ferocious movement. And then the use of his, I mean, did you see that, uh, that backhand he hit at four Oh, in the first set, I mean, they know he's way ahead. He just leans into this backhand and just rips across court. And, you know, when a when a is going after his backhand that way, that is rough going. And I, to me, it was court positioning, Amy.
2: The thing that surprised me the most had nothing to do with Nadal because aren't we used to seeing Nadal play this way on clay. It actually there were two things that surprised me relating to Djokovic and the first one was gosh I hope I don't get killed for this. There was absolutely 100% no drama with that guy. There was no medical timeout when he got behind. There was no um, racket smashing no you know complaining about a line call or anything like that and that is a sign of respect for nadal totally no, but I I, I I was, was surprised that there was not so much as a peep secondly um when we were talking we were we always do like a little pregame before we start recording and then our last one before our last podcast i said Let's not do the same old, same old and talk about the fact that Rafa hasn't dropped a set and Novak just had to play a five setter. I mean, everybody's going to be talking about that. But you know what? Raising hand, I was wrong about that because I do think that had a huge impact um, that Djokovic had to play that match and nadal was just more physical he was stronger he was able he was more built for the um slower conditions so that surprised me just how much uh the wind appeared to be taken out of djokovic's sails physically
0: so you thought novak was a little more weary and lethargic Mm -hmm. because of the long friday semi that's a that's an interesting call yeah and then you you
2: get into the long rallies and yes i mean i'm looking at the stats here short rallies ruled the day 53 to 25 to nadal and you're going to hear a lot about that everybody's going to be talking about the zero to four rallies how nadal dominated that category i'll be talking about that yeah and that's i mean brilliant because You got to really break down those points like he served and he looked for forehand, you know, and all that. Yes, that's true. But my question as we continue to study rally length as a sport is do the long and medium rallies have an impact on the shorter rallies. So Nadal actually won the long rallies 27 to 21 is there a demoralization factor at the end of a long rally. that um, helps
0: you win short that helps you win subsequent short rallies.
2: Exactly. <laughs> yeah,
0: I think but I think again this comes back to the court positioning while well, of course we're used to seeing Nadal win on clay I don't like I said having watched all 13 of his finals here I've I haven't seen him be as forceful you know a lot of his other finals here of course he won of course he's a ferocious competitor but he could more or less set himself up in in comfortable rafa territory like with federer hit a lot of cross court forehands and just kind of go to work but in this one there was a whole take it early hit it harder i mean it's funny you see these stats about hitting the ball harder yeah but one guy's hitting it earlier and one guy's hitting it with more margin so it doesn't matter like i even saw i, think, I believe gill that novak even hit more winners he also made like almost four times as many allegedly unforced errors, allegedly unforced errors. You know, it's like that gets to the whole, is there really such a thing as an unforced error? And if you're playing a guy like Nadal and you're flagging some balls that seem makeable, well, maybe they're not so unforced. Maybe they're partially forced.
1: Well, I assumed going into this match that Djokovic was going to hit. And Joel, I know you're going to, I liked our discussion on this last week. I assumed that Djokovic was going to hit the serve as a singular shot better than Nadal. I still thought that Nadal might have a chance to win the short rallies because his first forehand is generally a little bit stronger. And on clay, he's a great returner. And I think what this match showed is that we need to check ourselves when we just blanket statements say that Novak Djokovic is the greatest returner in the world, period. And we might need to put a qualification on that and say on clay... I don't want to overreact, but look at the uh, Steph, Steph Trudell tweeted out these statistics and they are astonishing on first serve in play. Nadal put back 61 of 65, 93%, 94% second serve. Nadal never missed a second serve return. He was 29 for 29. Djokovic missed some, some big ones in this match. Very uncharacteristic for him, but overall Nadal put 95% of returns in play. That's a good way well, to win zero through four shots.
0: Returns. You look at returns in different ways, and there's the return, and there's the return game, and there's different styles. And one of the reasons why did Novak miss those returns, not because the serve was any good, because he knew if he didn't do something productive with the return, Nadal was going to hurt him.
2: Well, that's not necessarily true. The first story that I ever wrote for 538
0: was um, Nadal. i I'm talking
2: about this, now. Nadal bludgeoning people with his second serve. Um, Not the serve itself, but what happens during that point. And um, today, actually, Rafa percentage of points won on second serve 68%, which is really good. It's even better than the percentage that he won on first serve, which is 67%. So Rafa won 68% of second serve points to Novak's only 55%.
0: No, but this so, gets to my point. Rafa was winning them, also. Novak was missing because Novak knew that if he didn't do something significantly productive with his return, that it, with his return that Rafa was going to step in and do something to him. And so Novak then felt he had to do more with his return, and that's where you miss. That's where you yes. miss, and you don't.
1: But I don't but, know that the intention was was always so uh, aggressive for Djokovic. I think. I that,
0: don't mean aggressive. I just mean I said productive. In other words, yeah. it's like there's a certain there's a difference between playing knowing you can get away with a four, and when you think, God, I got to play a seven. And but, so it's an. Interesting, yeah.
1: But you can't miss second serve returns. Djokovic had a fifteen thirty up one love in the second set, and just missed yeah. a backhand return on a second serve. Those are the
2: kind. I of remember things. that. Well, I remember that point. Is,
0: the other thing is and it's funny, and I think. I think this is gets to my, why I like to use the play for my life, not as just one thing as much as a attitudinal vibe of, of of smothering of what uh, Jimmy Connor's mother used to call tiger juices of how you create a climate of who you are. And you could see right even to the, to the late stages of the third set, it's five all. And then Novak, he just kind of flags them all. He's kind of like, he's kind of like, Fatigued. It's like it's like a certain and it's and it's different. This is where it gets to the world class level of energy and engagement. That's different than I think at the recreational level, where it's just like, hey, look, just get the ball and play. This guy, this guy doesn't. This guy may have intensity, but he doesn't also have skill. But at this level, they have intensity and skill. So Novak, you could see he was just so weary by oh, these I late agree stages. with that.
1: I I think the the plot line of especially the first and the second set where. Uh, Djokovic played a strong couple games to start and just didn't have any success and then got kind of demoralized. And then but played you're poorly right,
2: Gil. I mean, you're right that a missed second serve on a slow court like this is pretty much akin to a double fault.
1: And Novak, I you know, think mid- would agree. Experience.
0: Yeah. But the question becomes, and this is, uh, this is where I got to get and This is where also some of these, some of these numbers and I guess yeah uh, these analytics and tennis can mislead to how points are played. You know, to me, still the great well, the greatest analytic in tennis still remains the scoring system the scoring system and the game and where you're at in it and what you, and what you need to do and it's not just you know yeah I get it I get it at the recreational level. yeah get that ball and play and make the guy play no you're playing Nadal here he's been munching you and you gotta you gotta do something this is big time tennis this is offense I, I no, agree I think
1: the, you have to the, hit a good go return ahead. no no I I agree you can't if you're Novak, you can't just lay it in the court, but against Nadal's second serve on a slow clay court, Djokovic should be able to hit a return that puts him in a decent, a backhand return that puts him in a decent position. He just missed too many also. And I don't, I know there's only one point that I can recall the the exact score because it's stuck in my head. But I, I just thought that, that that was one thing that was regrettable for Djokovic and rock solid for Nadal, just ripping second serve returns.
0: I would love to find... I would love to find, uh, do research and look at Nadal facing break points in semis and finals of majors and the way he creates the energy, the energy matter of what he's going to do. And, you know, there's not going to be a lot of breathing room and even things like when versus Schwartzman, he innovates with the, the servant volley on a break point or in the famous Wimbledon final in 08. And he plays some key servant volleys against Federer, his, his awareness, his, I think more than any of these three, I think Nadal has the greatest energy read of what's going on in a match. The others have probably have more skill, more overall skill. Like if you're showing a young player to play, it's like, look at Novak, look at Roger, but as far as how to compete, I mean, he's, he's unbelievable.
2: Well, just to, before we let this thread drop, um, just to kind of back up what you're saying about analytics, Joel, um, hopefully the people at Infosys are not listening to this right now, because I got a little tidbit for you. So Infosys, Infosys took over um, as data services provider for RG I don't know if last 2019 was their last or their first year doing it. These guys are so good. They are brilliant and they're creative minds and they're mathematical minds and they're, um, I think they're based in Mumbai, India. They're fabulous. Um, They're really the best data provider of all the SLAMs. So They were showing me some stuff. If you go on the Roland Garros website, how you can look up almost any stat. You can look up hit points. I mean, almost anything you can think of. But if you go into the part that's like match beats, there's a button, and the button used to say "cruciality," but they've they decided that wasn't a good word, and they changed it to uh, "order of significance." So what the computer or the algorithm will do is it will order the statistics in order of importance for you so you just hit that button so i was like dying to see how this worked so i i went in and i hit the match and i was like okay give me what the computer says if it's if it's the us open it's watson but if you in the for the rg give me what the computer says was the most important stat do you know what it was it was for for this it was winners but Novak had more winners than Djokovic.
0: How could that
2: be the most crucial stat? So it just goes to show you that the analytics for the sport of tennis, because of the scoring system of tennis, the unique scoring system, you almost still need a human being in there. Uh, The algorithms don't have it yet.
0: Well, that's the thing about these numbers. I mean, that just shows you that we need to keep thinking about the best way to apply analytics to tennis. I like a lot of them, but I still think at heart, a lot of them are tone deaf at understanding the ebb and flow of what occurs in a tennis match specifically. I don't like total points won. I don't even like break points converted because if I break you once in the opening game and I've got a great serve, it's not like runners left on base. It's not futile. So what if it's, if it's one of 12 in the set, I broke you in the opening game and I'm holding, and I'm holding. So I just think some of these things are a little, not quite where we want them to be, but they're going to get there. We're going to get to some way of getting this richer and deeper. So it reminds you of, uh, of the Charlie Brown cartoon where someone tells Charlie Brown a bunch of things and they lost every game. They lost every game they played that season as always. And he's reading statistics and Charlie Brown finally says, tell your statistics to shut up.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, just, it's just so tricky. I mean, you study them more than anyone I know, Amy, and, and I'm sure you find them kind of tricky sometimes
2: there's an art to the math you know it's right. like a good doctor will say about medicine it's more art than science uh, that's what i think because the computer still doesn't understand the sport of tennis
0: well like today so today you hunted and hunted and you found out that the telling stat was that novak had more winners and he lost that's, them.
2: What, that's what they said but it's, it's so not funny. human beings it's an algorithm Okay, well,
1: it, I just find it hilarious that you brought up that button because I've been using the RG website throughout the tournament and and looking at the stats and appreciating them. And I've seen that button. And what does it say again? Order of importance?
2: Uh, or significance significance
1: i've I've looked at that button plenty of times and I've thought about clicking on it and I thought, <laughs> I don't need you to tell me what's important. I'll decide that for myself.
0: Maybe we could have the algorithm. Maybe one of our guests, we could have the algorithm as a guest. Yeah. Uh,
2: <laughs> actually, um, the guy who's in charge of all this is a fantastic guy. And uh, we'll have him on. He'd love to come on.
0: OK. Oh, really? That's great. I would love that. And I think we'll, we'll, we'll um, it'd be interesting to see how to prepare for that. I'd like to, interview. Yeah. to talk with him about our three guys. And then what you almost have to do is create that person their own useful metrics you know the the telling metrics for what they need to be doing that indicated for them and it's almost like uh, maybe because it's an individual sport there needs to be more customized metric tools that matter you know the ones for roger or novak or rafa
1: there's definitely more progress to be made there let's end on on roger fetter did you see what he said on social media amy
2: class act it it was something to the effect of how proud he was of rafa and honored to share the 20 mark with him and once again the triangulation rafa and roger ah so sweet and novak's over here but to you guys' point i did run a poll unscientific poll on twitter and sure enough the roger fans were rooting for rafa so they got what they wanted gil
1: yep yeah, I thought I thought what the most interesting thing in that is Roger said, you know, if it weren't for for Rafa, I wouldn't be the player I am or the champion I am. So, I I think we've all kind of suspected that, and for Roger to acknowledge that is is nice. And you do wonder if he would have said anything if if Novak would have won.
0: I think he should. have. I think he would have. I think does he, he does
1: he always congratulate a major champion after they win though?
0: Did he? That congratulate I don't know. Him? I'll leave that to I don't I'm know about sure. that. But this one, this is like these guys and this year and this incredible pandemic, just what a remarkable year this has been.
1: Yeah, well, um, it was it was something else and it, and it was an accomplishment for Rafa Nadal. Us three, um, send our congratulations to Rafa and his fan base. And it's been really fun covering the, the French Open and we will do plenty more. Hopefully we'll get more meetings between Djokovic, Nadal and Federer. This will conclude this episode of three. We really appreciate it if you rate and review on iTunes. We're available on all podcast platforms. Like the video, subscribe, leave a comment, and we will see you next time on the next episode of three.